Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 4th, 2014, and my guest is Barry Weingast, the Ward C. Krebs Family Professor of Political Science at Stanford University and a senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Barry, welcome back to EconTalk. Thank you. Our topic for today is law. What is it and where it comes from? Of course, we all think we know what the law is. It's against the law to break in your neighbor's house, cheat on your taxes. But as we've often discussed here at EconTalk, the law is often thought of as, well, that's, that's legislation. That's stuff the government does that tells us what we can do, what we can't do. But what we're going to talk about today is that that's not all that the law is, and sometimes that's not law at all. So let's start with the basic of all basic questions. What is law? Well, this is um, something that, that philosophers and historians and legal theorists have worried about for a long time. Uh, and one of the interesting things to me is, is that this is not really a topic in the social science literatures. So the two biggest literatures in social science on law are law and economics, and then positive political theory and the law and political science and, and law. And neither of them ask this question. They both assume that there's a legal order and that the rules are enforced. And then the question is, what, what should the rules be? Or how do the rules get chosen? Those kind of questions. Uh, but that you know, begs the question, what is law? Well, many people in that literature, like Ellickson, for example, um, assume that law is uh, simply the rules that the state, state sovereign commands uh, that the state enforces. The problem with this, of course, is that that's what dictators do. And dictators have friends and cronies, and they tend to give privileges to their cronies. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and more powerful cronies tend to get more. And so that's not a system of law. Uh, but how do we know that? Well, that's where we have uh, an approach to the question, what is law? And by we, I mean, this is a joint work with my colleague, um, Jillian Hatfield of the law school at USC, uh, which we've been writing several papers on this general topic, what is law? And we have a three-part uh, way of thinking about the law. And, and the first part is that law has certain characteristics that differentiate it from other forms of order, uh, dictator's order in particular. That is, the rules are general, uh, they are prospective, they are universal, they apply, and by general we mean that they apply in a wide variety of circumstances, not a very specific set. Uh, by universal we mean they apply to everybody rather than just to you. Or the cronies. Uh, or the cronies, yes. Uh, and uh, a few other kind of technical characteristics like that. These are the legal attributes. The other ones are consistency. Uh, prospectivity is a really important one. The idea that um, you know what the laws are in advance, uh, that laws are not made up after the fact. Oh, you did this. Didn't you know that we just made, after you did this, that we decided that's illegal and we're putting you in jail for this? Uh, that, that's a very personal system. So that's not law? No, that's okay. not law. So we're going to talk about situate. We're going to, we're going to talk about legal regimes broadly mm -hmm. defined that are. Let's let's hear those some of those key um, descriptors again. They're consistent. They're mm -hmm. universal. They apply to everyone. Mm -hmm. Known in advance. Mm -hmm. Publicity, uh, consistency, feasibility. Those kind of those are the more technical. The big ones are generality and universality and prospectivity. I think. That uh, they apply to everybody, they apply to a general set of circumstances, and of course you, you, you have to know them in advance. 
And so a dictator, because there's an ad hoc crony aspect to it, doesn't count as law. The the, the laws of say uh, right. They tend not tyranny. to be. They tend not to be general, and they tend not to be universal. So if different cronies get different deals by virtue of how powerful they are, then that's certainly not general because that means there's a name attached to this particular kind of privilege. Um, so in the TARP bill. Uh, which was passed in uh, 2008, there was a special provision in there for a subsidy to certain makers of electric cars. It didn't say which kind. In that sense, it looked general. Mm -hmm. turned out at the time it only applied to one car maker, mm -hmm. and that was General Motors. Is that... That, that was a form for me of cronyism that, that yes. got... I, I, yes, I agree. So what do we call that? Is that law? Uh, well, that's obviously a violation of the general principle of generality uh, and universality because here's something that's written in a very general language but is clearly designed uh, to cover a very specific circumstance. One of my favorite examples of that goes back to this famous court case in uh, uh, the late 19th century called Munn versus Illinois, which was one of the uh, uh, which was about the issue of whether the um, state of Illinois could um, regulate grain elevators. And the law was written as uh, every city that had more than 100,000 people in, in the state of Illinois would have, were subject to this regulation. Every single one of them. Chicago. Uh, so it looks universal, <laughs> but there's only one, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but what you're particularly interested in, which is, of course, what I'm particularly interested in, is not the uh, a categorization of what is law and what isn't, but rather certain kinds of law that have emerged historically without centralized legislative, mm -hmm. governmental enforcement, mm -hmm. uh, coercion in particular. Mm -hmm. So you and your co-author are interested in some cases where law didn't require government, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, there, there are a large number of cases where there are communities that for one reason or another don't have law. Uh, in the case of medieval Iceland, don't uh, have centralized. Uh, excuse me. Don't have <laughs> don't have a centralized system of enforcing of uh, uh, of uh, coding and uh, announcing the law and enforcing the law. Uh, so the California Gold Rush is a very interesting example because this uh, uh, the Gold Rush occurred in 1848 and California was not organized even as a territory at the time. Uh, the U.S. having gotten it at the end of the Mexican-American War, which ended in 1848. Uh, and there was no territorial government, and so no place to create property rights, let alone settle disputes over property rights. And the gold rush is all about property rights. Who has a claim to look in what piece of land? And so a set of rules emerged in this case uh, that have the three features we define as law. So, and that would, of course, most people would... Think, well, that's impossible because by the previous uh, conversations that have taken place, say, in law and economics, typically, or in political science, to get law, you need some, you need a police yes. of some kind to... Yes, to a whole set of enforcement Infrastructure, around. institutions, etc. Yes. Well, one of our points is we differentiate a system of a code of conduct uh, uh, from... Uh, as to whether or not it has these legal characteristics, and then there are two sets of others that we haven't mentioned yet. Uh, and the enforcement mechanism is secondary, and there are many types of enforcement mechanism. And I, and I should say this is something that Hayek mentions in the Law, Legislation, and Liberty 
uh, a book, that the, that the way the rules are enforced are secondary in comparison to the nature of people obeying rules so as to create order. Before we get there and before we get to some of the examples, I want to talk about uh, a distinction between norms and law. So uh, I will say in the past on EconTalk, we often talk about the law loosely as a, a set of norms, and, and that's not what you have. You have a more uh, specific definition in mind. So in your paper uh, with uh, Jillian Hadfield, you talk about there's a lot of social customs that emerge that mm -hmm. people adhere to, shaking mm -hmm. hands, paying their bills in certain mm -hmm. ways, et cetera. Uh, but you're talking about something, there's a, there's a specific characteristic of enforcement and punishment mm -hmm. that you have in mind. So talk about what that is and why that's important. Well, I think the real key to the difference between um, a set of informal social norms and law has to do with a characteristic we haven't talked about yet, and that's a characteristic of law whereby there is some kind of official steward. That is, there's someone uh, or some group or some body, maybe they're judges, maybe they're a council of elders, maybe they're the men in a community that meet at the diner in the, every morning for breakfast. Uh, and uh, what the legal stewards do is they worry about disputes that are not obviously covered by the existing rules. And so the way this arises is um, unforeseen circumstances occur all the time. Uh, and so, so much of what uh, the steward does is say, well, what rules ought to be applicable here? And often new circumstances have uh, multiple ways in which the rules, the existing set of rules could be extended. And in fact, often the two parties disagree and, and each being self-serving um, make the suggestion, oh, the obvious way to go here is for you to extend this rule in the way that makes me better off. And the, and, and the other party says, no way, you want to do it in this other way that makes me better off. And so as a consequence, uh, the role of the steward is to make a common knowledge announcement uh, of how to extend the rules in these new circumstances. That, of course, raises the question, who picks the steward? Where does the steward come from? You know, when we think of the sheriff as, as a very blunt adjudicator of disputes in the Wild West, uh, we have some idea of what that means. Let's talk about it in the context of, say, uh, let's talk with, about ancient Greece, which mm -hmm. is an example uh, you and mm -hmm. I have talked about before we started this, so that's utterly fascinating. Uh, Ancient Greece had law, mm -hmm. but uh, it was emergent. It was from the bottom mm -hmm. up. It mm -hmm. was voluntary. Explain how it worked. Well, ancient Greece is very interesting, and it changes in a series of circumstances, you know, a series of steps moving from roughly the uh, end of the 8th century B.C. through the high democratic, uh, democratic era of the 3rd century or the 4th century B.C.E., and... Um, uh, it, it is a system that mixes private ordering and public ordering. So there is a set of body that's called law, uh, and, but there are no judges. And sometimes the law, in some periods, the law is codified, in others it is not. But what they have is a system of private, uh, uh, of private adjudication whereby uh, individuals, private individuals are responsible for um, uh, 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 apprehending wrongdoers, uh, prosecuting the case, uh, making the case and, and sometimes even dishing out the punishment. And how would that work in, let's say, a property rights dispute of the kind that, that's going to be common in a lot of these issues? So you know, I think you've got my cow or my uh, piece of my land and, and I don't agree. And all right, no, I think you've got my, my cow. And you say, no, it's not, it's your cow. How would that get adjudicated in, in a modern system? I'd go to the court yes, and I'd get 
I'd go to the government, the local government, and I'd get a, I'd sue you or vice versa. Mm -hmm. But Greece had a weird system. Well, weird from our eyes yeah. because we're <laughs> used to thinking about uh, the rule of law and law itself as coming from um, uh, judges who sit and make determinations. But this system was different. As part, as part of the private prosecution, the individual prosecutor, uh, the, bringing the, dispute, the individual bringing this dispute was um, responsible for collecting evidence, uh, for stating what the law uh, ought to the law that exists or uh, as ought to apply in the circumstances, and as well as bringing forth witnesses. And the same thing for the dependent, the, the defendant. Uh, and so they, they bring evidence, and if the evidence is dispositive in, in one way or another, then the jury decides. We haven't talked about jury. Yeah, let's talk about the jury. The jury you is said the, there's no judge, but there's a jury. Yes, there's a jury. In effect, they sit as a judge, uh, performing a judge-like function. Uh, but they are not a judge, and they're not official. They, you know, every, every year there's six thousand people chosen, uh, six thousand male citizens chosen as a pool of jurors, and for any given trial, uh, they pick a number that's between two hundred and uh, uh, six thousand jurors. Uh, and so, it, you know, that means often there'll be 201 jurors. And what the jurors do is they listen to the cases, and at the very end, um, they they have tokens, and and and, and uh, they um, uh, basically it's just counting. You just count, you know, which which way the the vote goes. Each juror, in effect, votes for one of the two litigants, and then one is, and then if one wins, they, you know, one has a clear majority, then they are chosen. So who decides the number of jurors? I'm not sure how that works myself. Uh, but it's in the hundreds, which is strange. Yes. And you've speculated that there's a good reason for that. It seems like a bizarre waste of time, right? I mean, why not have three? Three would seem like plenty. Why would we want 201? I understand we might want turn one rather than 200, but why do we want hundreds? Well, one of the key things that Hayek says about the law is that it is not only rules of conduct, but rules of conduct with the idea of coordinating people's expectations. So that um, I have a sense of what you expect in a given circumstance, and, and you have a sense. And if those are not matched, then we're likely to have some kind of problem, because I expect one thing and you expect another, and we're both behaving according to what we think expectations are, and then lots of and bad things happen. And so part of the reason for having a large number of jur juries, I believe, is because uh, having a large number of jurors is that that way you're getting a sense of what the average Athenian citizen expects in this situ situation. Right. If you, if you draw three random people, they might be peculiar people. Yes. But 201, yeah. it's hard to get peculiar people out of 201. Um, it's worth mentioning, uh, before we go a little further into the Greece example, at this time, how many people are living in, in Athens, say, when we're... I think the number's around a quarter of a million. The number of citizens is, of course, much smaller. Which is roughly... I think maybe 25,000. I, right. I could be off on that. And uh, I should say, by the way, that the, uh, uh, the part about ancient Greece uh, is, is we are working with Federica Kataguri, uh, who is the classics expert, and she could not be here by virtue of being in Italy at the moment. Uh, and so... Uh, it's okay. We'll, we'll put up something eventually that, that gets these numbers more precise. But the point is, is that the population is relatively large. The number of people serving on these jur juries are relatively small, but the proportion of people on a, any one jury is relatively high compared to the people that could be drawn on right. it. So coming back to our earlier question, what's, is there a steward here? 
Is there a, I mean, you said sometimes the law is written down or codified in ancient Greece, sometimes not sort of who's in charge if it's, if it's all sort of voluntary and private and I'm the, I'm as the litigant, the prosecutor in the sense that I'm bringing the evidence and getting the, making my case, um, who decide who's in charge? Well, there are three levels at which that question gets answered. Uh, one is the level of constitution, uh, and, and there are moments of uh, where, where individuals uh, uh, create new, come, come forth typically in periods of crisis and create a new, new set of rules. So this happens early on uh, uh, with Solon, and then later on in, uh, with, uh, uh, with Pericles, the age of Pericles. Um, and so, so that's, that's one. Two, there is the Athenian assembly. And so there's a system of actually creating law at a moment uh, and, and other rules at a moment where there, uh, uh, there seem to be problems that the current set of rules and expectations are not being dealt with. And then finally, the cases themselves um, are, can be idiosyncratic, but there are famous cases in which individuals, uh, individual litigants uh, uh, argue in a very persuasive way uh, about how to think about a given problem, and from that emerges a rule. So what if I don't agree with the decision? I'm, you know, I think it's my cow, but I lose. Yes. Why, why would I abide by this 201-person jury that I think is just crazy, didn't, didn't see the facts right, got confused, didn't understand expectations? Mm-hmm. Well, What's enforcing the judgment? Yes. Is it just a social norm there, or is it something else? A lot of it is social norms. And so there is a sort of sense of uh, uh, a possibility of ostracism uh, or even death, putting, putting people to death uh, uh, for various things. As, as we know, the most famous case that, uh, uh, from ancient Athens is uh, the trial of Socrates in which he is, uh, uh, the punishment is death. And he uh, pours hemlock, very famously pours hemlock in his ear and, and dies as a consequence of the rules. In that case, in the case of ancient Greece, the, there is no... Uh, steward in the sense of... There's no unique steward. But think about our system. There's not a unique system steward here either, right? We've got many different levels of courts. So there's state courts. They're supervised on constitutional issues by the federal courts. The federal courts are are supervised by the Supreme Court. Uh, there's legislation that's passed by Congress and signed by the president or, or over his veto, passed over his veto. Uh, and then, of course, there are executive orders. So there are a large number. And then there are all these regulatory agencies out there making rules. So our society has no unique steward, and yet they all fit together in a way. We have lots of stewards. We so have lots if, of stewards. If you don't obey the law, you, you get put in jail. Mm-hmm. So in Greece, if you didn't obey the law, did you get... You said you were, could be ostracized. Mm-hmm. Are there vigilantes who would, who would appropriate property that or hurt people who didn't follow the rules? I think that's right. I think um, you know that, that a lot of it is private enforcement, and there are certain things that become okay to do to somebody who is in this position who fails to comply with the judgment uh, that one wouldn't normally do with um, with a, 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 an average citizen. So let's go to the gold rush, which would seem to be a difficult place to have private. Enforcement of law. There's a lot of money at stake. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is, I would think, um, having seen the treasure of the Sierra Madre, a lot of potential for violence. <laughs> uh, you know, my social science texts are very widely chosen. Uh, there's a lot of potential for violence over large sums of money. And yet, despite the fact that there was no government in California at the time, 
uh, and no even territorial government, certainly wasn't a state. What made it work? What what emerged to keep people from killing each other over? That's my you know that's my plot, and and uh, you're 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 in my way. Well, this illustrates uh, a very basic point. Your last your your last part of the question about the emergent order, and, and the, the prospect for violence, which this case has, as do so many others. And one of the really interesting legal theorists is a, a, a scholar named Peter Stein, whose 1984 book on legal institutions uh, characterizes law as the slow progression of um, transforming violent disputes into nonviolent ways of bargaining uh, in, in a, in a, that involve some form of public fashion. Uh, and so that's what's happening here as well in this uh, gold rush case. Uh, so, so yes, violence is a problem, but violence on two different levels. Indiv violence between two individual minors uh, who might have competing claims, for example, but also between outsiders and insiders, right? You've got to not only protect uh, uh, yourself from internal disputes, but from people coming over the hill and, uh, with guns and telling you you got to leave. And so part of the reason I think we get this organization of these local communities uh, or a site is that... Um, is that they need to defend themselves. And so each and so the series of camps emerge whereby you get cooperation among the, the miners in in the camp and uh, they tend to have similar rules, although they're not exactly alike and they borrow from each other. Uh, but but they sit in what we would now call the committee of the whole. That is, every miner that's in a particular camp uh, is 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 part of a a, 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 com a committee or a, a, the community gets together to the, to hear disputes. And uh, part of what they're interested in is creating rules that are very general, not that apply to these individuals, uh, because they, they know that they want to settle this dispute in a way that prevents future disputes of the same kind. This is sort of off the topic for a second, but it's, it, it, it just jumps to mind. Why is there such a thing as a camp? I mean, why aren't there just a bunch of random people spread out across a geographic area who are trying to find gold i mean it's are these economies of scale they're trying to exploit in terms of food and and protection i think it's protection is is one and another one is there are so many people there right that are you know and so you have to have some method of saying who has what the right to what claim uh and uh, as time goes on often sometimes in a period of months um rather than long period of years uh, a certain sort, set of rules uh, emerge, such as uh, each miner is allowed at most 15 square feet to dig in. Uh, and part of that's you can see what the density of people must be if that's what the rule is. Another aspect has to do with um, uh, are you allowed to leave and, and how do you come back? And so there's a rule about the, the, the shovel rule, which I think uh, has this uh, name, Jackass Gulch. Jackass Gulch rule or something, which has to do with uh, you're allowed to be away for five days. Uh, if you wait more than five days, then you then it's uh, uh, considered that you have abandoned your your claim. Uh, and then there are exceptions for for exceptional circumstances, like you broke your leg on the way down and can't get back up. <laughs> uh, and is somebody keeping an eye on that? On the five-day thing, or is that... Oh, I think they do. I think everybody knows. I mean, remember, if you got 15 square feet... <laughs> oh, that's true. You're not, Bill's you, gone. <laughs> yeah, my, you're not more than two, two, two shovel lengths away from me. And there's a guy on the other side, and then there are guys that way, and guys to the left, guys to the right. <laughs> so when a dispute arose, how did it get settled in this setting? I think if the parties don't settle it, um, uh, it, it that's not... 
wholly clear from the literature. Uh, and, and we have not gone back and looked at original sources as others have. But it appears that if the dispute is not readily resolved by the people involved, then you get, uh, then, the, then the camp sits as, as this group and hear something about what's going on, and uh, they are concerned about creating a general rule. I think they understand they want to create general rules because you want to create expectations so that you have fewer disputes of, uh, of this nature. And so that leads them toward generality, uh, publicity, universality, uh, consistency, all the, all the kind of legal attributes we, we identify with law. And of course, if they get to, as, as we said, if they get to unforeseen circumstances, there's, they, they, they sit as a legal steward in the sense that they are creating uh, new rules. And so in that sense, it has all the pieces of law. So the, the steward in this case is the community of, mm -hmm. of the whole, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, and they write this stuff down? Or is it word of mouth? Is it I an think oral tradition? More, I think it's an oral tradition because everybody's sitting with everybody. Uh, often they eat together. <laughs> but, but I'm a newcomer, say, and, you know, I've heard about this gold rush stuff and I show up and somebody's gone for three days. It looks like there's a nice spot and I just jump in and I start digging. Well, I think that's like any community, you know, um, people will, uh, I mean, if they have something like 15 square feet or even before it gets that dense, if it's say even 100 square feet, 10 by 10, there are people that are going to be around and they're going to see that, you know, and, and as in any formal system of social norms, they will react. That's not yours. You can't do that. On the other hand, if not every 15 square foot of land is... It has a claim and a newcomer comes, then there's some, you know, land that's available for the newcomer to claim. Which is fine. Mm -hmm. Now, what role does, let's talk about punishment. Obviously, no system of, of law is perfect. I always like it when people complain about some aspect of some, you know, legislative solution or some private solution, on the other hand, and then as if there were a perfect solution mm -hmm. sitting, uh, I think it's called the nirvana fa fallacy that, you know, oh, I want to live in a world where there's all the laws kept and, and there's and nobody is uh, has to be punished. But of course, inevitably, there there's misunderstanding, there's disagreement, and there's anger and violence mm -hmm. out of the blue sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about what you call decentralized collective punishment, which would be uh, contrasted with centralized coercive punishment. Mm -hmm. So centralized coercive punishment, we understand. That's where mm -hmm. the, the police come up to your house and they take you off in handcuffs. That's mm -hmm. pretty straightforward. And you're very emphatic about the importance of punishment, of this kind of serious punishment mm -hmm. as something that takes law above just a social mm -hmm. norm. Because if you, don't, if you don't behave politely to me, I don't beat you up. Mm -hmm. uh, I just say, well, I guess he's rude or he didn't get the memo that mm -hmm. you shake hands this particular way. But if somebody steals my stuff, uh, it's, it's a little more serious. So mm -hmm. what is the importance of decentralized collective punishment? And how does it come to be? Because a lot of people would presume that by definition, without a centralized coercive uh, situation, you've got a big free rider problem. You've got public goods here. There's no way a private decentralized solution is going to emerge. So why is it important? What is it? Well, decentralized enforcement works uh, in really interesting ways, I think. And, and so, so many uh, cases 
instances where there's issues involved get settled wholly privately. So for example, you have trees that lean in your neighbor's yard. You know, this is a very common occurrence and most of the time those get settled wholly privately. They don't go to court. Uh, and sometimes if, if a neighbor does something that's egregious, all the other neighbors talk about them and that, you know, there's the normal social norm kind of punishment, you know, ultimately being, uh, 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 you know, with banishment from the community or at least ostracized from the community. You don't, you don't get invited to the good potluck parties or whatever it is, <laughs> yes. right? Your kid doesn't get invited to the little league group, yes. et cetera. So that, but that's not what we're talking about here. Right? We're talking about something a little more intense. Well, I mean, if you look at modern contract law, we see almost exactly the same thing. Complex courts are really good at, at, at um, enforcing rules that they can observe and verify that are publicly verifiable. So you, have a, 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 you buy a bond from a corporation, and it says that they will pay you X amount of interest uh, qu quarterly, and then at the end of two and a half years, they pay back the bond. Courts are really good at seeing, did you make the payment? Was it the prescribed amount? Uh, did it was it made on time? Uh, you know, was the bond paid back? Courts are really great at that. When you talk about these complex relational deals now that are so, so common among firms, courts have no clue what the parties intended, let alone what kind of expectations are, uh, uh, are appropriate. And they really muddle that stuff up. And so there's, uh, uh, in this case, uh, there's uh, many of these cases never go to court either because they don't expect the courts to be able to solve the problem. And yet, part of the reason they have a contract is to set expectations as, as much as they can. But I'm interested in a case where I didn't get the memo, but it's something really important. So I didn't, uh, you came back three days later and I just insisted and in, you didn't come back after three days and I just took your land. Or Because mm -hmm. uh, you write about cases where in those situations, private individuals take it upon themselves to hurt somebody mm -hmm. who fails to comply with the mm -hmm. the law of the of the land in those kind of situations. I say the law of the land, it's not written down anywhere often. Yeah. Well, I think a great example is uh, Bob Ellickson's book on law, order without law about the property rights system that evolves very informally among the ranchers in Shasta Ca County, California. And there we do see a hierarchy of uh, uh, punishment. So this is a system of property rights that, as you mentioned, cows, it does involve cattle. Uh, and uh, it, it, what happens is in the community when things work well is each rancher has a mental tally about with each of his neighbors in terms of um, the, 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 the violations of property right. They, so a cow wanders from your land onto mine and destroys something. Uh, and so they just keep a tally and most of the time they just settle up once every, I don't, I don't remember how long it was, once a year, once every six months, who knows. Um, uh, but every so often you get somebody that's recalcitrant, that doesn't want to play by the rules. And so there's a hierarchy of punishment. The first is the community starts to gossip about you. Uh, if that doesn't work, then you, find, you can't find some of your cows. And it's not that they've been stolen, they've been driven up into the hinterland, uh, uh, and, so, and it's, they're hard to find, and you've got to go find them. 
Uh, and one of the great uh, illustrations of the, uh, the, the case had to do with a new person who came, a rich person who came just uh, and wanted sort of a boutique ranch to have a ranch and didn't care about what the communities thought about them. And so they gossiped, they fronted, ran his cows up into the mountains, uh, didn't do anything. And, and I think, uh, if, my, if memory serves, the way they finally get the man's compliance is uh, they let it be known, you know, He's sort of in a different place and that the volunteer fire company cannot, couldn't guarantee that if there was, if his ranch caught on fire that they could get there in time to save the house. So. And that gets your attention. But there's also what we would normally call something closer to vigilanteism in some of these examples where not just sort of we all gossip about him or, but people take the quote the law into their own hands Something that I think, uh, at least in the movies, is mm-hmm. sometimes considered um, bad form. Mm-hmm. But here it's, it's good form because it, it, it's the way that the law gets enforced. It is. Um, but I think that we need to distinguish between cases where the, the, uh, the vigilante is acting both as judge and enforcer, which I think in, in parts of the Wild West uh, you alluded to the sheriff. That's what the sheriff did. The sheriff was a local judge as well as. Uh, and so sometimes – uh, uh, that's and sometimes in places where there was an absence of that, people might act. But I think in these communities that we've been talking about, that is, where they're relatively stable groups, the key is is that no punishment occurs without um, without the community agreeing on what to do. So it's not an individual that's saying, "Oh, they hurt me. I'm gonna I'm gonna retaliate." That's a feud. And part of the whole purpose of law uh, is to substitute um, law and, and and legal reasoning for the nature of um, for for um, these violent. Um, feuds and other kinds of uh, forms of vengeance like that. But I think a lot of economists would argue that uh, nobody's going to take the enforcement law into their own hands because it's risky. You bear all the costs. Mm -hmm. Uh, If the guy you're going after is a better shot than you or doesn't like you coming after him, and therefore there's going to be this free rider problem, and uh, so people are going to get away with stuff because no, there's no... There's no police force. It's mm-hmm. just all just a bunch of people individually. Mm-hmm. And yet somehow some sort of enforcement mechanism uh, gets put in place. How, how does that happen? Well, I think it's important to notice that um, all the cases that we don't see of this, and we don't see it because it's actually hard to rig, and that the places where you see it is that there's some value that you get from it that, that, that I think that allows people to um, sustain these rights. And so I think the places where you see this, there's a reason why you can name these examples, <laughs> and that is because there aren't hundreds of thousands of them. This is not the typical case. We're very interested in the case where um, some form of order like this emerges and how it emerges. And so in a lot of cases, um, you never see this kind of stuff. Uh, in a lot of cases, you get a local strongman uh, or a dictator, and it's a very hierarchical, non-legal system. Non-legal, and there may be law, things that are called laws, but they're not laws in the sense uh, of these legal attributes that we've been talking about. So what are some of the characteristics, do you think, that lets these kind of um, legal systems emerge and not have that dictator or the centralized coercive solution? That's a great question. This is not one where, which in the series of papers we've yet to deal with, uh, but obviously it's, one, it's an important one and we ought to. And here's the way I would think about it. I think, so ancient Greece... Uh, 
before it becomes democratic, has an oligarchic system. Uh, and, and they tend to have, they've begun to devise rules of conduct uh, and formal, formal codes, but the, the, the feuds among the, and disputes among the elite uh, nonetheless continue to threaten stability. And so part of the reason, um, part of the value in a situation like this of creating law uh, is that if the elites have some reason for cooperating, uh, that's beyond simply preventing violence. Uh, then I, I think that's where the law comes in. I, I'm not being very clear here. So um, in, in my book which, uh, with Doug North and John Wallace, Violence and Social Orders, um, which, which we talked about in a previous uh, uh, podcast, um, we talk about how uh, most, most countries, most societies in the world have been what we call natural states. These are states that limit the uh, uh, access, limit access to organizations. So there's limited competition in both politics and economics. Uh, there's a set of privileges, uh, and uh, uh, the violence uh, potential is is widely dispersed. And so there's lots of disputes uh, and lots of violence. Um, and so I think this is the typical case, and part of the question is, how do these places like, say, ancient Greece emerge with something different, and what's the motivation? Well, I think most places never emerge from that. They just go thousands of years through this cycle uh, of this, and that's why we say the, the natural state, or, or uh, uh, we call these natural states because they're by far the longest set of uh, 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 they're by far the most prevalent form of, of governance in, uh, in, uh, that, that's occurred among human civilization. And when you have that, your opportunity to grow through, say, savings or innovation is low. Because right. you can't really rely on it being there tomorrow. That's right. Someone's going to take it. Someone's going to be very secure. If, you're not, if you don't have violence potential to protect yourself, uh, you become a target if you accumulate. And so... So the natural state's a poor one. <laughs> yes, and so the question is, why do certain places like ancient Greece emerge out of this? And I think it had to do with that they're trading states and that, they, that in order to facilitate trade and get rich beyond what you could do by being a local self-sufficient landlord uh, uh, requires a different set of rules. And that's where they begin to create a new set of, set of rules with a much wider body of citizens uh, that also creates this form of law with legal attributes and uh, uh, legal stewards, as we've discussed. The other part that seems important to me, just from our brief discussion, is the um, the limits on entry, either mm -hmm. actual limits or um, effective limits. So when you have a situation where, you know, Eleanor Ostrom's work on the problems of the tragedy of the commons, mm -hmm. you have the same group of people interacting over and over again, and it's a small enough group so that transaction costs, you can all get together in one room. Mm -hmm. The example of the community of the whole, the camp. It, it, it's, so, it's so valuable to figure out stuff that would reduce dispute and, and specify property rights that there's a natural, there are natural forces to push in that direction. Mm -hmm. But when you have large groups, it seems, and there's turnover within the group or you know, who can come into the group – that's going to be a lot harder, mm -hmm. uh, right? Isn't that, mm -hmm. aren't those factors going to be important? Absolutely. I think that there are a whole variety of factors, and especially um, one that both Hayek and North uh, worry about quite a bit, which that goes by the, the term uh, 
adaptive efficiency. I think it's a really badly named concept, but the idea is, is that how well does a society uh, adapt to changing circumstances? Uh, and if every time the circumstances change, uh, there's a dispute in part because uh, uh, individuals with violence potential need to consider themselves, in order to cooperate and have peace, they need to consider themselves better off under um, peace than violence. And one of the problems with changing circumstances is, is that the relative ca cap capacities change all the time. Yeah, and you're never sure which, where you are on that divide, right? That's right. So there's a lot of uncertainty and problems of credible commitment, asymmetric information, the standard ones that break down um, uh, uh, bargaining, peaceful bargaining. So you talk about how rare these kinds of emergent orders are that, that have um, these features that are attractive that lead to some potential for property rights, growth, trade, et cetera. Um, do the, is there any theory out there about why they get replaced with centralized systems? I think the standard temptation of economists is to say, well, uh, this is better because centralized is more efficient or centralized mm -hmm. is going to allow uh, more flexibility. But of course, mm -hmm. sometimes it's just centralized is better for some group that had power. Right. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think you're right. Most centralization occurs in the natural state framework and has this very asymmetric society whereby there's lots of privileges uh, and dispersed violence potential. So the key is how do you find forms of order that, you know, uh, move beyond that, that allow you to support pro property rights, contracts, a stable political system, and, and hence economic growth. And I want to observe that that's relatively rare in the world. Uh, uh, we now talk about developed societies, but uh, there's, there's not more than two, many more than two dozen on the planet, so approximately 10 to 15% of all countries, you know, all the rest are uh, of a very different form of natural states. Yeah, and I think, for better or for worse, we often think, well, we just need to get them to be more like us. Um, talk about that for a minute. I, we've had a lot of episodes on here about development and poverty and... Um, what does this perspective that you're bringing about emergent law tell us about their potential to adopt our so-called uh, rules? Yeah. Well, I think it's very difficult in part because um, when it comes to law, there's not a recognition of what the law is. Uh, there's a sense of thinking about it. If you think about law in the more standard way, social science way, as being uh, uh, sovereign commands, uh, issued by some central authority and enforced by the state, uh, then you want to approach the creation of law and rule of law for, from a very different standpoint than if you realize that the mechanism of enforcement is separate from the nature of, of law, that law ha is these two sets, these two criteria, these first the set of eight, eight, eight legal attributes as we've discussed, and then this function of a legal, legal um, steward of some sort. Uh, and designing that is, is very different, I think, than d designing um, uh, a system with centralized coercion, in part because uh, this, these, these, are, these are countries where it's very hard to create the centralized, uh, uh, centralized uh, control over coercion. And when you do, you often get Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union or Mao's China. Uh, rather than a system uh, of the United States in the 19th century that was relatively peaceful. You said it's hard to design those 
mm-hmm. attributes and the steward. Of course, by definition, those attributes and the steward emerged. They weren't designed, yes. right? Oh, so, good, good point, yes. So, you know, in a way, I want to be careful here. I think, uh, let, me, let me phrase it this way. When people say, you know, I'm a, I'm a small government guy, uh, which I often say, they say, oh, you want to live in Somalia, uh, no, I don't want to live in Somalia. Somalia is a bad place. I don't know enough about Somalia to really comment on it other than it appears to be a very bad place where there's no law. There's just a bunch of thugs driving around, moving around with guns, and that's a bad place to live. We all, everybody agrees with that. So what is um, what do we learn from this discussion of emergent law that might actually be uh, – that might be practical? What, what's – especially for poor countries? You asked more than one question. (laughs) And the first question had to do with my comment about design. Yeah. Uh, And I was thinking about design um, in the context of the aid aid community. So the World Bank, the IMF, the USAID, European Bank for Economic Development, uh, because they're in the business of designing legal systems. And part of what I was suggesting there uh, without referring to them, uh, I should have, is that they have a very different conception of what the law is. Uh, and as a consequence, I, I think the nature of the, 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 the systems they design uh, are, are, are bound to fail because they don't have all the features that are necessary. Uh, secondly, the, there's the whole question about whether or not one can sustain uh, law in these circumstances. And I'm a big doubter about that. I think that Part of the problem is is that in societies where there are um, where there are um, uh, where violence potential is um, decentralized, it's very hard to have a set of stable rules because, as we discussed a minute ago, uh, circumstances are always changing, and different groups are getting more powerful. And when they get more powerful, they want privileges. To have more privileges, they have to take them from somebody, and often those people are really disgruntled about that and will fight instead. And so as a consequence, it's really hard to sustain um, these legal characteristics like stability. I think I, we didn't discuss stability, but stability I think is one of them. And so how do you create stability in a societies with dispersed violence potential, which means that there are all kinds of people that uh, uh, will fight for what they want, and if they get stronger, then they demand the rules change. So what's the implication then for what? Uh, I, I'm going to put Barry Weingast in charge of uh, the World Bank for this week. What, what would you... What would you do differently, or USAID, these organizations, or or private charity that, that's trying to do good work in, uh, you know, in a in a very poor place? Are you suggesting it's a waste of time? I don't think it's so much a waste of time, but it suggests uh, there, there's a phrase you used a moment ago, having to do with transplanting institutions from the developed world into the. Uh, developing world, and I think that this is one of the mistakes uh, that the the community, the donor community, makes. So, oh, you don't have markets. Let's create markets. Oh, you don't have good governance. Well, you need uh, a legislature, a president, a separate uh, judges, a separation of power system, constitution. Oh yeah. What's const- wrong with that approach? It works for us. It does. It that's the problem. It works for us. <laughs> um, I think uh, we are now getting. Moving away from the what is law question into my my previous work with uh, uh, North and Wallace that I've mentioned on violence and social orders. But part of the problem is is that it's very difficult to get these institutions to work in these natural states where there's dispersed violence potential. 
And often, uh, and, and one of the rules, I think, of creating stability is the nature that the bargain should limit the stakes of power. Uh, and the reason is, you can think about Chile 1973, where there was this dramatic military coup and they took over the government. And part of the reason that the coup worked was the government was uh, the le was a left government and they were threatening the property rights system. And so the pro you know landowners, large landowners, were willing to support the military in this really bloody coup uh, as a consequence. Uh, and so the key is, I think, if societies have the ability to limit the stakes. Uh, then they lower the chances that this kind of uh, a coup will happen. Uh, coups are important in, in, for what we're talking about because they typically dramatically change the nature of the rules. And so if you want to create stable expectations, uh, uh, coups, are <laughs> coups really get in the way of that. Right, and it's actually surprising how well Chile has done s since then, uh, given that most of its neighbors, which have a... The, an enormous amount of uncertainty around their rules uh, are not doing very well, right? And that's yes. part of the reason. They just they just kind of limp along and yeah. wait for the next crisis. Yeah. Uh, well, crises Argentina, we see that in Argentina, yeah. right? It's been less uh, about a decade, uh, maybe maybe a few more years than that, since it's their last huge crisis, and it looks like they're teetering on the verge of bankruptcy again. Um, whereas Chile... Uh, managed to set up uh, in, in some in inadvertent ways a system uh, that ended up working. And part of the reason it worked in the beginning uh, in 1989 and 90 when they were transferring power from the dictatorship to, the, uh, uh, to create a d democracy was because the, the dictatorship still had control over the army. And so the left uh, hadn't didn't have much option with respect to the Constitution. And so they accepted the Pinochet Constitution, which has a bunch of peculiar features, peculiar from our standpoint, from the standpoint of the West, in that it creates a bunch of veto enclaves. Uh, uh, and so, for example, it was expected that the left would be able to take the presidency and I believe the lower house, uh, but they rigged the system for the upper house so that the conservatives the party on the right uh, that, that the dictatorship supported, would have a veto in the Senate. And the way they did that is that there were a number of senators that were appointed for life. And so the, the, the expectation, which turned out to be true, was that uh, the, the, the uh, party on the, the right could um, get between 35 and 45 percent of the Senate. And so when you added in a certain number of uh, 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 senators for life, they had a majority. They were able to make it so they had a majority and hence a veto overall power. Uh, what makes it interesting is that the left does not consider this a legitimate constitution in, in the uh, beginning, uh, legitimate in the sense that they're not willing in any way to defend it. They don't think it commands them. It's just the fact that they, the, uh, the army commands them. But over time, what happens to these senators for life? They're not mortal. <laughs> I mean, they're not immortal. Yeah. And so the left begins to take command over these veto enclaves, and they become, over time, less and less of a, 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 of a constraint. And so it turns out in, uh, I believe, 2005, the, the left is finally able to uh, alter the Constitution and remove these, but it does so with the means that were given in the Constitution for changing the rules. Mm -hmm. And by that time, they've come to seriously the left, except the Constitution. And so that's one of the conditions of, I think, a successful constitution, uh, that people think these are the rules that are appropriate for us and we should defend them. So let's go back to our law discussion, although I enjoyed that digression a great deal. Um, what's the rule of law? What does it mean in, 
in everyday language. Uh, I find it fascinating what people, um, it means a lot of different things to different people. What, what does it mean uh, to it you? It does. Um, well, historically, the rule of law has meant that the rules are, uh, are known in advance. Uh, they are stable. Uh, they are general. They apply to people. In other words, they have these legal attributes we've been talking about. Uh, in the last 25 years, there's a tendency to lump all good things uh, that people want, such as good governance, uh, equity, and the like, uh, to be considered uh, uh, as part of the rule of law. Uh, those are all good things, uh, but they're not the rule of law. <laughs> and so Hayek, of course, is one of the great theorists of the mid-20th century about the rule of law. Uh, and uh, uh, he's famous for emphasizing the importance of the, the stability of the rules and expectations. And you can see, as we've already discussed, that he's uh, one of the foremost people that, that emphasize the importance of aligning people's expectations for settling disputes. So one way to think about that is, if, uh, and, and this is an example from my co-author, John Wallace, um, if, the, if the speed limit's 65, how fast should, should I drive? That's one question. That's the way to think about it in terms of a code of conduct. But it's more than that. And that is, if the speed limit is 65, how fast are other people going to be driving? And I need to know that and have some expectations before I make my decision about me. And that's the point that Hayek makes about the coordination function, uh, uh, the way in which the, the legal rules coordinate people's expectations. And that's a real key uh, for the rule of law. So, I mean, it's such a great example because, you know, Don Boudreaux used it here when we talked about um, Hayek and when we're talking about the differences between law and legislation. The legislation says you can't go faster than 65. Uh, in some situations, keeping that so-called law, abiding by that legislation is a violation of the law because everybody expects to go 72 or – whatever it is, and it might be 80 in certain situations. Mm -hmm. If you're going 58, you're actually making it dangerous right. for people. Um, uh, you know, my favorite example is, I, I don't know if I mentioned it uh, on, the, on the program before, but it's such an important example where um, a person, a friend of mine, I forget who it is now, but perhaps that person will come forward and is listening. Uh, he's driving in a bad neighborhood and he gets pulled over by the police and he gets pulled over for uh, stopping at a red light. Mm -hmm. oh. And the policeman says, you don't stop at a red light in this neighborhood. It's a bad idea. Keep keep going. Mm -hmm. And in particular, if you do, if you, you think, well, okay, so you're overcautious, uh, you're overcareful about keeping the, the law, meaning the stop at the red light, not only are you putting yourself at risk of being, having trouble for stopping, but you get hit, you get rear-ended. Yeah. Because no one expects you to stop at the red right. light. Um, I mean, I remember when I... Another example, I apologize to listeners if I mentioned this before, but I moved to Washington, D.C. in the middle of a hurricane. And this was 2003, and all the lights on the main, uh, one of the main streets had been, uh, were out. And so it was very unclear what, what, what the law was at this point, meaning what was, what was the expectation of what I would do when I came to an intersection. And in general, what people do in that situation is we're on the main street You've got the right of way. If you're entering the main street, you've got to stop, mm -hmm. uh, at least in America. There are other mm -hmm. cities, of course, around the world where that's not the case, but it, and that's the way it works. So if you slowed down and came to a stop because, well, the light's out and I've got to be careful, you could get yourself killed because someone could hit you from behind not expecting that. Yeah. Obviously, if you live in a place where the lights go out all the time, 
Those type of expectations emerge. They're consistent. Everybody knows them except the newcomers, and they learn them very quickly because they get usually get it. <laughs> I think that's right. And, and one of the things that, that interests me is uh, I think we get so many good examples of this from traffic uh, because it's part of our everyday experience. So, so part of the coordination game, people always talk about the simplest kind of do you drive on the left versus the right. And much more interesting expectations occur uh, at these more complex situations. And so you mentioned one. Uh, another one has to do with this intersection that's uh, at the one, one of the main entrances to, to Stanford, not the main entrance, but the next one over. Uh, uh, here uh, at Galvez uh, and, in, and, and, and out the, out the big, big street, El Camino, that goes for miles. And um, so you get people that want to turn left from any given direction, people that want to go straight, and people that want to turn right. And there's tons of cars all the time. And so it's a very complex intersection with complex rules. And it's uh, one way I, I, I saw how efficient these rules were relative to uh, circumstance because a private plane one day crashed into the... Uh, uh, the lines leaving the power plant in Palo Alto, and, and the electricity in Palo Alto went out. And so the lights were flashing red. And the lines were miles long because nobody could get... Every single person had to stop, wait their turn. There was confusion as to whose turn was next. Yeah. So... Well, we, some of you, let's may have seen these incredible videos uh, of cities around the world that have no lights at any intersection... And in particular, um, the ones I'm thinking of are in Asia, where cars are going at extreme speeds. M maybe it's a speed up video, but it looks like they're going 40 plus miles an hour, and they merge into traffic. Uh, somehow, all of a sudden, it's all going one way, and then all of a sudden, it changes, it goes the other way, but there are no lights that change that give people the right to go across uh, one way or the other, and yet somehow... Yeah. Uh, fear of, and I'm sure they have lots of accidents, by the way. Uh, so do we. <laughs> exactly, so do we. Uh, this is true. Um, but anyway, uh, we're almost out of time. What else do you want to say about law that we haven't said? I know that's a six or seven hour uh, invitation, but what important maybe for this conversation? Well, I, I think I want to sum up, uh, we've talked about law being independent of the enforcement mechanism, and I think that that's uh, one thing to understand that, that uh, we're used to thinking of law in terms of a coercive apparatus. And I think we should conceptually separate the, the mechanism of enforcement for that. I think centralized coercion is important. It's, it's efficient. There are certain kinds of things, as you said, with the free rider problem that make it very difficult to deal with otherwise. Uh, on the other hand, it's not fully necessary. The law of contract, complex contracts works on a reputational basis. Know, much more so than than, than um, we would uh, expect from looking at the law of contracts, uh, and that uh, the, the key I think about what makes law work is being able to sustain the issue of uh, you know these legal attributes as well as some kind of legal steward, and that there are all kinds of circumstances where that those kind of properties emerge that have have law. Let's close to talk about Hayek uh, for a minute. In, in Law, Legislation, and Liberty, in, in Volume 1, he has a, a very, for me, a very strange and interesting vision of what judges do and what they are. And I guess, in, to use your um, language, they're the stewards 
But he envisions a world where judges uh, don't make law, they find law. Yes. They look around, they interview the litigants, they talk to them, and by doing so, get an idea of what the, quote, law is. Um, because by definition, no judge can know every expectation about every social situation that could emerge or where people would interact and have disagreements. Is that a consistent example of your stewardship vision, that that's what they're doing? They're the people in charge of, of, of sort of setting expectations and then confirming them with their decisions? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, Hayek, um, you raised a very interesting point, and it's a set of multiple points. You didn't ask one question. So I want to read um, a, a couple sentences from Hayek in, in this volume you mentioned, Volume 1 of Law, Legislation, and, and Liberty. And he says... Uh, those who first attempted to express the rules did not invent new rules, but were endeavoring to express uh, what they were already in acquainted with. And this endeavor is that of, quote, discovering something which exists, not as one not as one creating something that is new. In other words, part of the endeavor he emphasizes of what judges do is they try and understand what the parties expected and what other parties expect. Uh, and sometimes they get that wrong, but cases in which they get it wrong, they tend to see over again. Uh, and so Hayek emphasizes that this is an evolutionary process. It never comes to maturity. Uh, and it's always ongoing, in part because the world is always changing. And as the world changes, the rules that were appropriate beforehand are no longer so. We see that with property rights and intellectual property rights, which used to be focused on, uh, on copyright law, uh, trademarks, brand names, that, that kind of thing. And now, uh, uh, and now there is, in the last 25 years, it's just exploded in the, in, in the way that it covers so many other kinds of circumstances that we didn't even imagine. I'm going to take it in a totally different direction to close this out because it just, it just spawned a, th a thought, which is one of the things that fascinates me is, um, fortunately, is getting older. So uh, I'm 59, and, I, and I, I'm blessed to have parents who are in their 80s, and they look at the world, they look at my world very differently than uh, they look at their own world. They see my world as somewhat peculiar, um, somewhat strange, somewhat surprising, partly because I'm in an been an academic my life, whole life, which is, of course, if you're not in it, a very peculiar industry. But they look at their grandchildren's lives with even, you know, stranger eyes. And it's obvious why, right? The laws changed. The, mm -hmm. the expectations have changed. The norms have changed. What's considered decent behavior, good behavior, correct behavior. And, and there are a lot of things that people do in the world today that they view as horrifying, of course, and some of that is public policy. Some of that, though, is just private behavior. And this is a classic, you know, story that as people, you know, the older generation doesn't understand the younger generation. But thinking about your comment about about Hayek reminds me that when changes, you mentioned earlier about how important dynamism is in dealing with a dynamic world. And I think it's very hard for human beings to think about the world as being dynamic because for most of us, it's not. We've sh we've closed off a lot of the dynamism by because we can't cope with it if we if we embraced it fully. So what happens is in our culture right now, where change is so rapid, it seems to me that it's it's harder to get old uh -huh. <laughs> than it was before. The stuff, you know, I I'm sure we all can really understand this. You know, with the technologies that our that our parents don't use, and I start thinking that's going to be me in in 20 years, but it's going to be worse because. As the pace accelerates, mm -hmm. the cost of learning those new technologies come effortlessly to the young. 
mm-hmm. are going to be even harder for us to mm-hmm. adapt to. So um, I just it reminds your insights about dynamism and um, and figuring out what expectations are. It just strikes me that as we get older and as the pace of life changes, it gets a lot harder to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a lot of truth to what you say. I think we all see this in the way that our, uh, our kids and their kids are, are so much more facile with these kind of modes. Uh, and, of course, the way in which, I mean, part of what's so exciting right now about the potential transformation of the world is the way in which these apps arise for dealing with circumstances that we never imagined. So Uber with the urban taxis, uh, the other of these various sites that allow you to find, uh, uh, instead of an expensive hotel room, you rent an apartment. Uh, uh, Airbnb. Airbnb, yes. And, you know, the, the what, what these are doing is creating markets and exchanges between people who wanted have exchanged but no longer could and 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 i think that we're just beginning to see where that's going to go that's really going to explode but the norms that go along with those activities are going to change and you know this brings us full circle to recent episodes on these topics we've been talking about um those norms are endogenous those those feelings are endogenous and the older folks are going to some of them some of us are going to struggle to accept those norms but for young people it's just piece of cake yep I guess today has been Barry Weingast. Barry, thanks for being part of Econ. Oh, thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.